You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of a lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Hello, everybody. My name is Paul Barnett, and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, and so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Sir Graham Henry. Graham is a New Zealand rugby union coach, He started coaching in 1975 while teaching at Auckland Grammar School. His coaching and teaching continued, and then in 1992, he also took on responsibility for coaching Auckland in the National Provincial League in New Zealand. And then in 1993, he led them to the first of four consecutive championships. In 1996, he resigned as a headmaster to take up full-time coaching with the Auckland Blues and then led them to back-to-back Super 12 titles in 1996 and 1997. He then took on the role as head coach of Wales and in 2000 led them to the Six Nations Championship and the Grand Slam. While coaching Wales, he also led the British and Irish Lions on a tour of Australia. In 2003, he was appointed coach of the New Zealand All Blacks and went on to lead them to the 2011 World Cup. In 2012, he was awarded a Knight Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit in services to rugby. The way Graham talks about the team's culture being built from its purpose, which was to be the best sporting team in the world, and the role that humility played in bringing this to life. How, by the time he was appointed All Blacks coach, he had learned about the importance of empowerment and moving from a coach-driven environment to a team-driven environment. And the way the difficult decisions he has made in his life have gone on to benefit him in the long run. And how, in his words, learning about yourself under pressure has been a key part of his development as a leader. And just before we go to the interview, today's podcast is is brought to you by the Macquarie University Business School's MBA program. Designed to empower, challenge and transform, the Macquarie MBA gives you the business skills and knowledge you need to succeed in an evolving global economy. The program bridges the gap between theory and real-world application, 
bringing together world-leading professors, executives, and industry partners to teach you how business can be used for good. I have just started working with the team at Macquarie on some projects and can attest to the quality of the people and material. To find out more, search for Macquarie University Business School's MBA. And now please enjoy our interview with Graham Henry. Unfortunately, the audio is a little poor in parts, but I hope it doesn't detract from what is a great interview with one of the game's all-time greats. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. So, Graham Henry, good morning, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Yeah, good morning. Very happy to be talking to you this morning, Graham. Could I start with something pretty simple? Could you tell us where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far today? Well, I'm on Waiheke Island, which is an island off Auckland, New Zealand. Um, it's probably about 35 minutes by ferry. It's just after 8 a.m. in the morning on a Friday morning. Um, the temperatures here today will get to about late 20s. So it's the middle of our summer, so it's it's considered hot in this part of the world to be in the late 20s. Um, we're very fortunate. We live, uh, as I said, on an island. We, we've got a couple of acres. We, um, we fish and garden and drink wine and enjoy our mate's company and all those things. So um, married with, with three kids and five grandkids, 77, so I'm late middle-aged, um, and um, married to Raywin. We've been married for 53 years, so we've had plenty of practice, and there we are, and I'm talking to you. Well, Raywin's a great coach in her own right, which we might get onto through the interview as well, but I appreciate you taking a little bit of time uh, to talk to us. Uh, Graham, you've, you've, well, I want to start at the podcast uh, four years ago, and i Thought I'd interview great coaches. I I uh, made a list of my my dream list, and uh, and and you were on it uh, because of the the great success uh, that you've had with the All Blacks. So I'm really keen to hear about that and the cultural change that you were at the forefront with uh, with that amazing team. But perhaps we should just start at the start, which the start of your coaching career was 1975. I'm I was two years old. Uh, and I'm wondering, when you cast your mind back, what do you remember from those early years? I think it was I was exceptionally lucky. I was a school teacher, physical education teacher, mainly in science, and I taught at a school called Auckland Grammar School, which is a traditional boys' school in Auckland, quite a well-known, uh, famous school in New Zealand. Uh, produced the most number of all black. And I was asked to assist with the first 15, uh, their first 15 rugby team, um, which started in in 75. Um, and I was fortunate because we had these very keen young men who were jumping out of their skin, wanting to play, wanting to play good rugby. So it was the ideal environment to, to learn to coach, if you like. Uh, and so we still meet those teams. Those boys still meet. They're in their 60s now. Um, and so there was great empathy, but also lots of lots of real keenness and, and some had real ability. I think during the time I coached Auckland Grammar, 1975 to 1980, I think there were six All Blacks during that time, Grant Fox and the Wetton Brothers, uh, to mention a couple or, or three, Nicky Allen, who played 5'8 for the All Blacks, a couple of hookers, Mills and Bucken, John Mills and John Bucken. Uh, so, and I've missed out John Drake, who we played in the 1987 Rugby World Cup as a prop forward, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. But um, so talented boys, keen as mustard, ideal environment, uh, to learn to be a coach. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity. It gave me a bit of a, a, a solid base to start with. That solid base takes you eventually to be your first senior coaching role with Auckland in 1992, so it's 17 years later. 
when you transitioned into coaching the seniors, what do you remember being most surprised by at the time? Well, I've been coaching a long time by then. So we're talking 1992 when I started in 75. So we've got uh, 17 years in it. Uh, um, and I, I coached senior rugby five or six years. I was a headmaster of a secondary school in Auckland called Kelston Boys High School. So I couldn't, um, couldn't coach initially at the highest level. So I coached the Auckland Colts for, I think, five or six years. Uh, during that time after I finished with university. And that was the end of the season. It was a, a rep team involvement rather than a whole season because uh, I was a new headmaster, if you like. And so I was learning the ropes as, as a secondary school principal and and coaching rugby. Um, and then in 1992, when I was still the principal of, of um, Kelston Boys High School, I was appointed coach of the Auckland rugby team. And the game was amateur then, um, and we played, we played some Super Rugby. Um, <clears throat> I think it was called the Super Six, and we played provincial rugby. Obviously, uh, it was a very strong side, um, and I coached them through to 1998 when I went to Wales. But during that time, the game changed and went professional in 1996. So I was the Blues coach in '96. Uh, the Auckland coach in 96, so two different teams, and the principal of Kelston Boys High School. So I was do, doing all those roles, um, and something had to go. And um, I was very passionate about education, and I really enjoyed the role of headmaster um, and the responsibility. Uh, but I had to make a decision whether I was going to become a full-time rugby coach or, or and so I I prostituted myself and took the money and became a full-time coach in 1997. Uh, so I coached the Blues in 96, 97, and 98. And, the, and near the end of 98, probably August, I went to Wales. Uh, but that's another story. There's a couple of stories in there I'd like to, to just uh, ask you a little bit more about, actually, before we get to uh, Wales. Because when you're at Auckland, you, you're being uh, you're being very modest. Because there's four consecutive MPC championship titles. You beat the British Lions, and you win the Ranfurly Shield back from Canterbury. Uh, Canterbury. I mean, those were some fairly serious achievements. Graham, what travelled with you from that experience into the future? What 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 was visible later in your coaching style? Oh, I I do. I spent a lot of time on research, um, uh, watching teams play, watching us play. That's Auckland and the Blues, and working out how we could improve our performance, how we could beat opposition tactically. Um, I think probably if I had a strength, and I didn't have many, but if I had a strength, it was the ability to analyze the game and to analyze strengths and weaknesses of the opposition. Uh, analyze ourselves and how we could improve. Um, so just just working out what was the correct game plan against various opposition. And I, I think by having the background and researching the game, uh, and I had a lot of help in doing that, um, but I think that helped us win rugby games. Also, we're a very talented team, which is always pretty helpful. And good coaches have good teams, and I had good teams. So I was very fortunate there. But we did win six out of nine championships, uh, two for the Blues and four for Auckland over over that six-year period, I think it was, in nine championships. But as I say, you know, we had Sean Fitzpatrick and and Lumu and Joey Vendery, and I could go on and on, Um, Robin Brook, you know. So we had a very talented rugby team, and – and they performed but and enjoyed the game. You know, it was a transition from amateur to professional. A lot of these guys had normal jobs um, and were transitioning out of those normal jobs into professional rugby. And when they when they were amateurs, they the game was their outlet. They just loved playing and loved performing 
And Eden Park was packed in those days. You know, we'd get 40,000, 50,000 to a super game or a big NPC game, National Provincial Championship game. And so it was, a, it was a very important part or a very enjoyable part of Auckland rugby. And I, I took over a side from Morris Trapp and Brian Williams, which was highly successful and, and, and very experienced. And um, so a lot of those players were legends in the game. So let's not get carried away here. Uh, good coaches have good teams. But if I had a strength, it was probably the ability to analyse the game and to get the right game plan on the field. I want to ask you, Graeme, about the second thing you talked about a minute ago, and that's being a headmaster. And it was uh, it, it was one of the major schools, I understand, in New Zealand as well. This was quite a prestigious school. What are the similarities when it comes to leadership? What are the similarities that come from leading a, a large school like that and leading a sporting organisation? Oh, I think, you know, the, the school that I was principal of was Kelson Boys High School, which was a decile 3-4 school, uh, which means that it was in a reasonably lower socioeconomic area and there was a lot of Pacifica boys in that school. Um Maori Pacifica, so probably when I left there, it was over 80% non-European. And I think um, two things stood out. One was the staff were superb, uh, very good staff who, who who helped each other a lot, so good spirit in the staff. And that was uh, a bit of tradition at Gelson Boys High School in those days. Um, and a lot of teachers who got involved and things like cultural groups and music and art and sport. And by catering for the individual, we, we got the best out of most of them. Let's not get carried away here. Not all succeeded, but by giving them, um, giving them support in their interests, they did better in the classroom. And I think that's very important. So it was an individual education, if you like. Know, give kids opportunities to participate in their Samoan cultural group in arts and rugby. Uh, they did better in the classroom in mathematics and science, if you like. So, um, so that was that was pretty important. But also having a having a staff that were motivated to help these kids was. Hugely important. So, Graham, we get to Wales. And, of course, Wales and New Zealand both have rugby as their national sport. Uh, it's fair to say that my Welsh friends are mad for rugby uh, in the same way that New Zealand is completely besotted with the game as well. But when you head over there to take on the, the job as the national coach, Rugby New Zealand implemented the Henry Clause, which was designed to block you from ever coaching the All Blacks. Now, that that must have been quite a shock. That must have been, you know, to, to have that dream taken away from you. I'm wondering, when you reflect on decision-making and the role that's played in your life, did you ever doubt that decision to head over to Wales? I'd gone down the track quite a long way, um, like the Welsh – invited me to be their national coach, which was a great honour. And I had gone down to Wellington to see the CEO of New Zealand Rugby. And I said, look, um, I've been asked to coach the Welsh, but I'd rather coach the All Blacks. What's my chances? And I can't repeat what he said to me. He just abused me. And so really, really, I really thought that was improper not the right right tactic. So it, it just gave me the motivation to say, well, if that's your attitude, I'll leave. And um, at the time, I talked to a couple of board members and that wasn't particularly positive. I'd coached at the level below for a long time. Um, so, I'd, well, I'd coached for 
six years at the level below and we'd had a lot of success and I wanted to coach at the highest level and I may never contract was pretty attractive. Um, so, and it was a new experience, you know, it was uh, outside your comfort zone, knew nobody um, going to coach in a country that was passionate about the game, but had had a lot of recent failures. So they weren't, they were in, in pretty poor shape uh, to be fair. Um, and so it was a good challenge, a new experience, um, something I'd never done before. I I thought it would be something pretty special to have a crack at. And I had a very supportive wife, <laughs> still got the supportive wife. Um, and she she supported me, which was fantastic. So I made the decision to go, but it wasn't an easy decision. Um, even Auckland Rugby, I had to pay, I was contracted to them and I had to pay back some money, which was, uh, I thought, unfair, but I had no choice. So after being six years and helping Auckland Rugby for a long time, both at Colts level and at senior level, but that was the, the way it was. And so I just had to bite the bullet and get on with it. Get on with it, you did. So in 2000, you lead Wales to the Six Nations Championship and the Grand Slam. It's it's a great, great achievement. It must have been so special to be part of that in such a rugby-loving country. But at this stage, you're also 54. And I'm wondering, without being ageist, it's not far off the age I am, going to be soon, I wonder whether you thought this might be the pinnacle for you. Well, the Welsh um, challenge was all-encompassing, and um, and I I loved it. Um, but I, I come from an educational background. I hadn't come from a professional rugby background, if you like, uh, to the same extent as perhaps the opposition. Um, so my my career was in education till I was the age of fifty. And I hadn't had a background in, in rugby, if you like. It was just my passion. So it was a massive learning experience for me. Um, and I had some great people who I worked with um, in Wales who were very supportive. In fact, Raywan, <laughs> Raywan gets over there, coaches a netball team because she's into netball and, and um, so she's coaching a club team in Cardiff. And they asked her to coach the Welsh national team. So she's coaching the Welsh national team and I'm coaching netball and I'm coaching the rugby team. So we're, we're pretty busy, you know, we're up to our eyeballs, but we loved it. Um, but it took its toll on the finish. I was asked to coach the British and Irish Lions and the Tour of Australia in, 19, in 2001. And that was a challenging tour. Uh, didn't go as well as I'd hoped it would. I didn't do as do the job as as well as I should have. Um, should have done it another way. But again, I was learning, and I learned a massive amount about myself, about the coaching of rugby with other people, uh, which I and and mainly about um, learning about yourself under pressure. So I had some difficult times there, but. I look back and think they were the greatest learnings of my life. So when you, when you go through everything, and so I got depression apparently and resigned and left in 2002, um, that learning was invaluable going forward. Um, and I was, you know, it was a pretty serious business because I was being paid a lot of money. I think I was probably the highest paid rugby coach in the world at that point in time. And that I'm not. That's not a, a, a gloating statement. It was just a factual statement. So um, it was a lot to give up, you know, because it gave the family a lot of stability. But your mental health is much more important. And so I, I, I resigned and left and went back to New Zealand and got myself right. But in the meantime, New Zealand rugby was involved in the 2003 Rugby World Cup. And um, the 2003 Rugby World Cup was meant to be played in Australia and New Zealand. 
But because New Zealand couldn't get clean grounds, no advertising, um, the International Rugby Board, now World Rugby, um, changed their tune and, and, and had all the Rugby World Cup in Australia. Therefore, the New Zealand Rugby Board got the sack and the CEO who introduced the Henry Clause. Henry Clause was lost. And so on time, I was able to apply for the All Blacks uh, in 2003 and lucky enough to be appointed in, to that job for eight years. Brian, could we talk a little bit more about the burnout? You, you, you mentioned depression in there and what you learned. And you talk a lot about it in the book. And the book is is a fantastic read. I'm going to put the links to it in the show notes because this period in the book's very raw, actually. You, you know, what was going on with the British and Irish lines. You've been this super – you've had this great successful run, not only in rugby but in your career, and then you get this big stumbling block. And the way you talk about it, it's – it's almost very emotional, and I say that with all due respect because I've interviewed probably half a dozen coaches from New Zealand now, and I think there's a degree of stoicism there, and I think that they're a very proud sporting nation, so it would have taken a lot for you to write about that. But what's the learning you've got for other people when it comes to dealing with something like this? Well, I think, you know, I was coaching the Welsh, and I was asked to coach the British and Irish Lions, and um, that was a huge Honour to be asked to coach them. I was the first non-Brit to coach, non-British and Irish person to coach the British and Irish Lions. And it's one of the biggest brands in the game. And I really, I made the wrong decision. I was just too busy. And I was full-time Welsh coach. And then then I was asked to coach the British and Irish Lions on top of that. I wanted to stick it up New Zealand rugby, (laughs) quite frankly. I just wanted to show them that I I could coach at the highest level, and um, so it was a, it was just too much. I got I had too much on my plate. I couldn't handle it. I should have realised that was the case before I accepted the job. Um, and so they but they learned from that. You know, the the Lions Board, whatever they're called. Uh, have never appointed another coach without giving them a year's leave of absence from their current job. So Warren Gatlin, for example, has been doing the Lions for some time and he got a year's leave of absence from his, from coaching Wales while he coached the Lions. So there was a big learning for others as well. But no, it's just, just, just um, too much going on um, to handle it all. Um, if we'd won in Australia in 201, and Australians were good in those days, am I allowed to say that? Yes, uh, so they you were are. the best in the world in 201, the world champions in 1999, and and uh, so they had a very strong side. And it was a great series, the Lions series in 201. Went to the wire, uh, seven tries each in the three test matches. I'm just trying to pump up my own tyres here. Um, so, but, you know, I, if I'd done it better, um, we could have won it. Um, and so I, it's the first time I think really in my career that I, we hadn't achieved when I was coach as much as I'd hoped we would. And I, I hadn't been used to that. Plus the fact that I had, I was overloaded big time. Um, and it just took its toll. So, I knew I had to get out. I I I just burnt out totally. I knew I had to get out. I I I wasn't going to come right by staying. And the Welsh Rugby Union were fantastic to me, very supportive. And so I just came back. Raywin stayed actually because she had a World Cup in Jamaica, uh, Nipple Cup. And I came home and and um, exercised. You know, I went to Akaroa, which is a little French settlement in the South Island, out of Christchurch where I was born and bred in Christchurch, so I knew Akaroa well. Took my parents to Akaroa. They were still alive in those days. This is 2002. And I ran the forest in Akaroa every day. Was, uh, there's a forest at the top. And it comes down into the valley, into the down into the Akaroa Harbour. And it's amazing the connection between the physical and the mental. 
and I got myself right. Um, well, I thought I did. <laughs> and then I got an offer to coach in Japan, a university site in Japan. So I went over there and coached. I got back on the bike and I coached with David Young and that university site was at a university, won the All Japan University title. They were going to win it anyway because they only invite you when they're good. And um, so I got back on the bike, came back to Auckland, uh, end of 2002, knocked on the Auckland Rugby Union's door. David White was the was the CEO, said I'd like to help the Auckland team again. And he asked Wayne Pivak and Grant Fox, who were the current coaches, whether they could put up with me assisting them. And they said, let the old fella in. And so I became the defence coach for Auckland. And that expanded on to the Blues. And those two teams won three championships in a row, which was fantastic, really enjoyable, not being the, the head coach and having full responsibility. And and then I played for the All Blacks and, you know, with the change of governance, the Henry Clause was lost and I was fortunate enough to be appointed All Black coach for the 2004. And so there we are. And you've got two pretty handy assistants with you when you get the job. There's uh, Steve Hansen, of course, has gone on to be a, a great coach himself, and Wayne Smith, another great coach. So you had a pretty good uh, team around you. But what I w- wanted to ask, uh, Graham, is this is a big change for you, this this all-black job, because in my reading of what happens, you go from being the person who was – charge of everything had their hands on everything to being the person who's overseeing things and being a bit more like i don't know if the analogy is the right one but being a bit more like a conductor stepping back a little bit and i i wanted to ask you was it easy i may have misread the situation from from the book and, and the research but was it easy for you to make that adjustment to being someone that was just one step higher No, because I loved being up the front. And, um, you know, that was how I always coached. And I'd coached then for about, um, you know, probably about 30 years. And so I was that guy, you know, up the front um, beating the drum and trying to get everybody organised and motivated and so on. And it was just the way it was, you know. It was the way you learnt when you were teaching and headmastering and uh, you didn't have time uh, in those days to to get yourself right and do the job. So, no, it was a major change. And the the change was due to my my learnings in Wales and the British and Irish Lions, that I had had to give other people a lot more ownership, not only the rest of the management team, but the players. And the more ownership I could give them, the better they would respond. And so that was the big learning, you know, uh, go from a, a, a coach-driven environment to a team-driven environment with a lot of other people having increased responsibility. And I think getting the right people was critical. You know, it's about the people, isn't it? It's about um, the selection of the right people. When Wayne and Steve where two are the right people, and there's a lot of others. Um, And so I spent a lot of time trying to make sure that the right people were on the bus. Um, And I had guys like Gilbert Anoka, who's been the the All Blacks um, sports psychologist for the last 20 years, Um, people like him, and and, and the right medical staff, et cetera. I could mention a lot of names, but I'll miss somebody out. So... Let's not go down there. But And then forming a leadership group amongst the players. So we had a leadership group of 13, um, seven players and six management. And they, with the communication with the rest of the team, ran that team. So it was a matter of, matter of giving them a lot more responsibility, a lot more ownership, and me driving the bus from the back of the bus and to the front of the bus, if that makes sense. And lifting, trying to help lift uh, the abilities of all the other people with the help of some very good people who I've mentioned. 
And so it was successful. It took a wee while to for it all to come together. But um, as I said, the more responsibility, more ownership we gave people, the better they performed. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'd like to talk about that leadership group, Graham, but... I'd like to just take a few steps before we get there, if I could, because a lot happens in those early years in charge. And, you know, there's there's the book, Legacy, that's written about what happened. Um, and we've interviewed James Kerr, actually, on the podcast as well. But I'd like to just hear from you, actually, about what you were trying to do in those early days when it came to improving the team culture. Yeah, it's a long story, um, and we haven't got three or four hours. But really, um, the All Black culture in those days was probably, um, and I, uh, no criticism, it was just the way things were. Um, the senior players were dominant, and there was a there was a a alcohol problem in the group, um, but it was just the the continuation of the amateur days, you know, um, hard men on and off the field, you know, and 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 that didn't suit everybody, and so we had to develop a culture that that everybody felt comfortable in, and not just some hard men who who may have responsibility of the team. So we went through some learning curves, um, but in the finish, it was about having a clear understanding of what your purpose was. And our purpose was to be the best in the world. But we had the ability to be, so we we had to achieve that. And not only the best rugby team in the world, but perhaps the best sporting team in the world. And like the All Blacks have been nominated for the Laureate Sports Awards Team of the Year four times and been named once, and nobody else has done that as far as I know. So there was some achievement on that purpose, you know, to be the best sporting team in the world. And nobody knew that. Like, we didn't advertise that. It was just within the team. And then we had to develop a culture that would achieve that purpose. And 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 everybody had to uh, take that on board, adhere to that, live that culture. And that culture was really, to be brief, was about humility, you know, understanding where you'd come from, not getting ahead of yourself, realizing your job is to keep getting better, keep improving. Um, so that was your job. If you thought you were the finished product, you were dead. So it was a constant self-improvement by the management and the players of that team. So humility, understanding that you are not, that you can always get better. Um, and coupled with that was um, the hunger the integrity of doing what you had to do to, to achieve those things, you know, to achieve that self-improvement. And then we were lucky because we had a a team that has a history, a legacy that goes back a hundred years. And our job was to add to that legacy. So it wasn't a difficult story to tell and not a difficult story to, to put into place. If everybody, if everybody um, 
agreed and went on and 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 in the main in the main 99% no that's a bit of an exaggeration 95% of those people involved um agreed with what we were trying to do and so it was a team driven thing it was a solution focused it was about communication um and it was real time real time um culture so every two or three test matches we'd sit down say what are the goals for the next two or three tests how are we going on our culture how are we going on our ability to play the game so we we set objectives for every two or three tests but constantly working on um the right behaviors the right culture and if you haven't got the right culture you can't be um the best or you can't achieve your ultimate potential so that that backbone was incredibly important real time culture total understanding of what that was by everybody involved and what we were trying to achieve but as i say you know we we're very fortunate the all blacks are considered perhaps one of the most successful sporting teams in the world over 100 years and we had that base to work from and and that legacy and improving that legacy was was hugely motivational and what's interesting is it's not a straight line to success because in 2007 the team i think it's fair to say unexpectedly lose in the semi-finals of the world cup and i know there are there's there's a refereeing decision in there which is you know it's probably been proved to be wrong but when i read about the situation and how you handled it i'm fascinated from a leadership point of view you you reflect on it by saying you were trying to make the most of the situation which you described as terrible but Graham, the way you handled yourself through that period meant that you eventually went on to win a global sportsmanship award um, at a at a big award ceremony in paris i'm sorry i've just forgotten the name of the the city that where you were in but just reading through it, I, I, it felt to me like this was you at your best as a leader in that moment, and I'm, I'm wondering what you learnt or what you talk to about when you meet other leaders, when you reference that time, and the learnings that you, you, you share with them. Yeah, I, I think um, you know, I had a bit of luck. <laughs> to be fair, a guy who. The 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 quarterfinal Carter for the Rugby World Cup in two oh seven was probably the most difficult rugby game and aftermath I've ever experienced. And uh, I was lucky that I'd gone through the adversity of the British Lions and Wales and the depression and leaving because I think that gave me a lot of strength of learning how to handle that sort of stuff uh, that adversity um, it's a long story again and, and it take a long time to tell the full story but really we we just took it on the chin uh, initially and so there was no point in complaining about how the game was officiated. Um, and we just congratulated the French and got on with it. Um, I I didn't make any excuses at the press conference, just didn't say anything really uh, at the press conference after the quarterfinal in 207 and went into the, British, into the French dressing room and spent some time with the French. I knew, knew Bernard Laporte, who was the, coach because he was a coach of the French when I was coaching the Welsh so I knew him quite well and just congratulated them because we'd beaten them by a big score 50 points three or four months prior so it was a major turnaround and they played well no doubt um, so and then I was nominated and, and learning curve a big learning curve we came back to New Zealand do the job in that quarterfinal we froze we choked there's no doubt we still should be, but we still should have won the game but we didn't so how do you learn from that? So you're always learning from adversity. We were lucky um, to be reappointed, all black management, you know, Wayne and Steve and myself. 
were reappointed. Um, and we brought in a, a mental skills coach. Uh, well, a mental, we brought in a psychiatrist. Kerry Evans was his name. Uh, he was pretty well known in New Zealand. He was an ex-New Zealand football captain. He was a black belt in karate. And he was a psychiatrist, so he had all the right ingredients. And he talked to the leadership group about how we could improve our mental toughness under pressure. Um, and it made a big difference to us. You know, it's another long story about the whole detail of that, but it made a big difference to us. It won what rugby games. Uh, our, we, we were mentally tough to win some games against the odds. And we finished up winning the Rugby World Cup in his involvement, Kerry Evans' involvement, was a real positive for us. So I can't, I can't emphasise more than you learn a lot from difficult and might bend on those difficult times. But if they knew that this is the greatest learning curve they'll ever have, maybe they'd hang in. And I was lucky; I'd been through the the Wales British Lions experience and knew that you're going to have some adversity. You just got to handle it and learn from it. And so. Um, so I was fortunate. Could I ask you, Graham, about uh, Kerry Evans and mental skills? Because it's a big issue, not just for sports people. I think there'll be many parents listening that think, you know, I'd love to be able to help my children develop mental skills. Is there one or two little things that you think we could all be doing to help in this area? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think passion is important, you know. Um, I was obsessed with rugby coaching and I've got no no apology for that. I think it's important to have passion, obsession, because it rides over the bumps in the road. And I just wonder whether our young people today are scared to be too passionate, too obsessed by their by their interests. Um, I'm not sure if it's seen as a positive. I think it's positive. And um, so I think initially you need to have a passion if you're going to achieve in a certain area, a real passion, a real obsession about doing your best all the time uh, to achieve on the on the big stage. Um, I think also you need to conduct your life so that you're, uh, you're helping your mental mental skills and I found I found um, having a lot of exercise helped me uh, the more I exercised the better I felt and the better I could connect with people so that became part of the ritual uh, exercise I also had good mentors um, guys I could talk to people I could talk to as I said I've married well so that was that was very helpful Raywan was very helpful Amazingly helpful, actually, because um, I, when I was going through the worst of it, she was the backbone and um, she was very helpful. I also had some, some the guy who used to be the Auckland Grammar Principal and he's no longer with us, sadly, John Graham, Sir John Graham. It's in the book. Uh, he taught me at Christchurch Boys High School. He asked me to teach at Auckland Grammar School when he was first appointed principal there in 1973. Um, he changed my life. You know, I would have been rudderless without him. Uh, so he was fantastic. And there was others, you know, Jock Hobbs, who was a chair of New Zealand Rugby, spent a lot of time with him. Um, so I could go on and on. Um, but having good mentors, good mates, who you could talk challenges with, you know, a, a, a problem shared is a problem halved. Um, also getting away, you know, getting away out of the heat um, doing a bit of fishing, getting your, getting your toes in the sand, <laughs> revitalising, um, pretty important. Uh, also, you know, I think doing the job well, you know, there's nothing more uh, stimulating than you think that you're on top of it. You may be kidding yourself, but when you think you're doing a good job, you make you feel good. So it's a combination of... Um, all of those things, really, um, understanding where you're at, understanding that you're under pressure, understanding you've been there before, um, 
not losing your passion for the job, but in, in, in um, making sure that you're looking after yourself properly, you know, that exercise, those good mates, those those um, mentors, just recharging the batteries, doing the job well, all of those things. Well, can I talk now about the 2011 World Cup? And I'd like to circle back and talk about the leadership team because in the book you you describe it as being not not the reason but the the main tent pole that keeps this culture alive on a day to day basis. And I'm wondering if you could just walk us through the setup of that leadership team and what you learnt about these types of teams along the way. Yeah, as I said before, you know, the leadership group was made up of 13 people um, at that time um, with seven players, seven senior players and and six management. And the three coaches were involved and Gilbert was involved in that, Gilbert and Oka. Uh, but the players, I think from memory around the 211 Rugby World Cup were with some pretty impressive individuals like Richie McCaw and Daniel Daniel Carter, um, Conrad Smith, Mills Mariaina, Brad Thorne, and the two hookers, Kevin Mialamu and Andrew Hoare. And um, those meetings were were very vulnerable meetings, and people were very vulnerable in those meetings. So our whole goal was to be the best in the world, and what. What was the elephant in the corner stopping us doing that? Um, so they were pretty emotional meetings. And everybody, I hoped, had the opportunity of expressing their opinions. And some, uh, their strength was to express those opinions. Um, so that was that was pretty critical. And they they grew together, those players. You know, they grew and, and and helped each other. And they went on, you know, um, Smith and Conrad Smith and, and Daniel Carter and Richie McCord and Kevin Mialamu became, they went on to the 215 Rugby World Cup as leaders, you know. So, and they were joined by guys like Ma Nonu and, and Kieran Reid and many others, um, Tony Woodcock. And I think there was probably a dozen players who played 211 final who played in 215. And so that group, their combined strengths and their combined support of each other was a massive, um, a massive reason why the All Blacks won two Rugby World Cups in a row. Um, so, you know, as I said before, the more more ownership those guys were given. And as they grew and, and, and grew in experience, um, the greater ownership they took, more responsibility they took. Um, and you look at that group, you know, Conrad probably played, a, a, did he play 100? I'm not sure, probably close to it. Um, Daniel Carter played a, over 100 tests. Kevin Mialamu played over 100 tests. Richie McCaw played 149 tests. Um, um, so you you had a massive amount of experience, and also a huge amount of respect for one another, and guys going out of their way to add to that that leadership. Uh, Sam Whitelock was a young player in in two eleven, um, a young lock forward, a second year international in two eleven, started in two ten. You know he's now the greatest. Lock forward in the world were the most capped lock forward in the world, so he was part of that um, going forward. Um, so, just you know, I think the change in giving players ownership was a, the major, a major reason why the All Blacks won two Rugby World Cups in a row. The other one, I think, was the learning from two seven when we weren't mentally tough enough to handle a situation in Cardiff. And learning from that situation and and developing a, a mental skills program that addressed that. 
it seems like all those learnings from the Welsh experience and the burnout that you that you experienced as a result came to bear in that period, you know, spreading the load when it comes to leadership, working on mental skills, focusing on the environment. It seemed to all come together to create what was something that was pretty special. Oh, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, um, yeah, it's it's um, surviving. <laughs> Survival is pretty important, you know. They could have given us a sack after 2-7, um, so it's about survival, and let's face it, we were lucky enough to survive. Also, we beat the French in two eleven by one point. One point makes a massive difference to your life. You know, look at the All Blacks from the, the last Rugby World Cup mm. uh, when Ian Foster's the coach, and they lose by two points, was it? But could have won the game. It makes a massive difference to your life, and and um, so I. Well, uh, Although we went through some adversity, you know, I went through some adversity, uh, also had a lot of luck. And uh, you need a bit of luck. You need a little bit of luck to to do these things. Graham, you've been so generous with your time. And I know it's uh, probably getting ready for your morning coffee or your morning walk. So maybe just one last question, if I could. There's been so much written about the cultural change that you oversaw at the All Blacks. I don't know whether... I've really managed to add to that much today with this interview, but it, um, it it is so pervasive in modern culture and it's obviously the book Legacy has helped it travel all over the world. But these days, when people bring up the word legacy to you, how do you feel about it? Uh, you know, I, I – yeah, it's a good question because I, I wonder – I wonder where how what we're doing in the game today. You know, I there's too many variables that you can't control, and I think the game's got too complicated. I'm not answering your question. Um, I think I would drop the tackle height to below the waist, waist and below, and I think it would change the game, and it would get get back to the great game that we all love. Uh, I'm just a bit concerned about the future of the game at the moment. It'll make the game safer and and a more attractive game to watch and a better game to play. Um, so can we continue to add to the legacy? Well, I'm I'm just saying the game's got so complicated, um, and I think perhaps we're we're also making it more complicated. Like leaders still got to lead, even though they might be leading from the back of the bus, um, they've still got to lead. And um, and I just wonder whether we've got too many leaders in the group, you know, and and how 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 is that how is that uh, worked through so there is a very clear direction going forward, and uh, it's just a gut feel. I could well be wrong, so do I do apologise if I'm stepping on anybody's toes here, but we still need very clear direction on where we're going and, and 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 how we're playing. But I, you know, with the officiating of the game and the complication of the laws, um, I think people are losing their love of it. And, and so we've got to simplify it again. Um, so it's, it's, it's a much easier game to play and an easier game to watch and an easier game to understand and a safer game and a more attractive game so that's my hope for the future i hope the rugby world rugby has got similar thoughts and those changes will happen a wonderful answer because it illustrates something i've noticed about great coaches they're always looking forward to try to get them to look backwards is really difficult so graham i appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us it's a it's a, such a wonderful story. It's been so uh, eloquently written about all over the world, but it's wonderful to hear it directly from you. And you gave some advice in there around, you think you said, have good mates you can talk challenges with. And I've, as you said it, I could think of two friends in my life that have going through challenges and need a phone call. So I'm going to uh, bid you a lovely day and I'm going to go and call those, those two mates of mine. You do that. Thank you. Enjoyed it. All Thank the best. You, Thank you, Greg. Bye, all.
Hi, everyone. You have been listening to the great coach, Graham Henry. I hope you got a lot out of Graham's story and found a few ideas that you can bring to your own dinner table, locker room, or work table for discussion. I loved how honest and open Graham was about his depression and the way he'd overcome it. And some of the other key things that really connected with me were the positive role that passion and obsession can play when it comes to developing mental skills and how his background in teaching and being a school headmaster taught him about the importance of reaching the individual through the things that interest them. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Tom Lebhertz, who after listening to our Vern Gambata episode said, great coaches reflect on what happened and what needs to be done. Thanks, Tom. We love the interaction with the people around the world who listen. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And if they're positive ones, of course, spread the word amongst your family and friends too. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our webpage, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.